This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. There are many issues that politicians use to reach out to black voters. Police and criminal justice reform, public education, equal opportunity. But is it time for leaders to talk to African-Americans about climate change? We're saying that let us hear from the genius outside the academy and let us hear these voices that are rising up as our new environmentalists, who I believe if you hear from those voices, we can actually make change happen. The fight for climate justice coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Welcome to Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. We're right around the corner from Super Tuesday, a sign that election season is heating up around the country. And even though President Joe Biden faces little opposition for the Democratic nomination, there are serious questions about ways to motivate his base so he can win a second term. African-American voters are crucial to that effort. While many strategists differ on what might galvanize black voters, for some, energy is building around the issue of climate change. Environmentalism has long been considered a preoccupation of white people and educated people and affluent voters, but the damage of climate change is being felt disproportionately in communities of color, and it's being felt right now. Raising awareness about that is part of the mission of the Hip Hop Caucus. It's a group that's been working for years to educate and activate young African Americans around climate justice as a civil rights issue. Its leader is Reverend Lennox Yearwood Jr., and he joins us now. Reverend Yearwood, welcome to A Word. Man, thank you for having me. For folks who aren't familiar, how would you describe the Hip Hop Caucus? Because people may not know what it does. They may think, oh, you know, he brings a bunch of rappers together and they talk about issues. Like, what do you guys actually do? Well, we do that. We bring a bunch of rappers together to talk about issues. But no, we, we this actually, we're, we're turning 20, 20 years since we started in 2004. So that's amazing to be around anything for 20 years. And our goal has been the same. How do we use our cultural expression to shape our political experience? How do we do that through economic justice, through democracy, getting out the vote, um, through issues of civil and human rights, and definitely climate justice and environmental justice? If you're not in a place that was sort of immediately hit by something, if it wasn't a Hurricane Harvey, if it wasn't a Hurricane Katrina, how do you get people engaged in the dangers of climate change in places that haven't been impacted by, say, a natural disaster? I think Hurricane Katrina is what I would call our lunch counter moment for the 21st century. I think it's in that moment when our community, speaking for those who are uh, particularly Black and Brown and Indigenous and in the hip-hop community, I think it was Hurricane Katrina that was the light that went off about how we could be left behind, how particularly how in this country, um, the richest country in the world, an amazing country, but a country that left behind 
particularly poor people and poor black people. And in many cases, kept them in there. We know that on the Crescent City Connection Bridge, when they were trying to leave, not just on, on August 29th, but on September when it was so hot that when they tried to cross that bridge, the Gretna, Louisiana Police Department stopped them on the bridge with dogs and turned around. We know that our, many of our grandmothers and our grandpapas died on that bridge. And we see that over and over and over again, how so many of these disasters hit particularly our communities first and worst. And But I think beyond that, to your point, is that since then, as we begin to look, we said, well, hold on, even without these disasters, why is Louisiana that strip between Baton Rouge and New Orleans? Why is that called Cancer Alley? Why do we have dirty water in Flint? Why do we have the water crisis in Jackson? What are we having in Baltimore in regards to water? How are we having the lead crisis? And so I think now we're connecting the dots. And so I think since then, um, this new kind of environmental justice movement is sweeping. It is now a huge political issue for particularly young people, millennials, Gen Z, and Black people. This has now become a key issue because they realize that while our parents fought for equality in the 20th century, and we're definitely still fighting for equality, but we're now fighting for existence in the 21st century. You talk about the fact that air pollution kills more Black folks and police brutality. It makes sense to me, right? But it's not as shocking and immediate. You know, you're, you're not going to see grainy video of, of air pollution killing people the same way that you see Walter Scott or George Floyd or something else like that. So so give me some of the data b- behind that statement that air pollution kills more black folks and police brutality. Yeah, just some numbers. It's just some, just the numbers that we know right now from both John Hopkins and also from um, many of the research that we've done that it's literally millions um, because of asthma and emphysema um, and also now cancer because of the particulate matter that's floating in the atmosphere. Um, we now we know that 68% of black people live within 30 miles of a coal-fired power plant, um, which releases the particulate matter. And listen, police brutality is something that's horrible, but we're talking about pollution. What we're talking about now is folks who are in their boardrooms and they're making these decisions. And that's what is so nefarious about this. But they're making decisions that are causing our communities to be called sacrifice zones. Our communities to be to be in positions where, um, because of that industry, because of the pollutant, because of petrochemicals, because of coal-fired power plants, because of the pollution, again, it is causing for many in our communities to suffer because of the air, the air quality and water quality. And so I think that I think now what we're now raising up is that one, there's solutions to this, Doctor. Robert Bullard um, from Texas Southern released many books. People can read them about literally how your zip code can be determined for how good your air quality is. But that, that shouldn't be the case in America. And we could do better. And I think that that's one of the issues that we're excited about. It's not about Republican and Democrat. But what we do know that we were seeing now from uh, Administrator Michael Regan and others, um, you know, Shalanda Baker and Department of Energy, even from this administration, they are concerned about the fact that people can live and breathe. Let me, let me say this. I, one of the hardest stories for me, and I do this for Hip Hop Caucus, but I'm also really happy to ask, are you really a reverend? I said, I really am a reverend. <laughs> Went to good old Howard Divinity um, and the like. But the hardest thing for me is when I see so many people in inner cities who are dying because of asthma attack. There's nothing worse than seeing a child's casket. And so in Chicago, I'm so glad 
that their uh, attorney general is suing big oil that is now coming out. They're suing big oil because of this pollution that is coming. Yes, in Chicago, yes, there's problems with crime. And yes, there's other problems. But there's a big problem because we now know that those chemicals also create flight or fright problems. And so we need to address that as well. A big part of your work is, you know, fighting the fossil fuel energy. I mean, folks can't see this, but you got a hat that says end fossil fuels right now. Uh, And that includes direct protests against companies that invest in that industry. I want to play a clip from a speech you made at a sit-in at Chase Bank in 2020 and get your thoughts on the other side. The problem, though, is that the business plan right now for this bank, for Chase Bank, is that they are funding the fossil fuel industry. Over the past three years, they put $196 billion into the fossil fuel industry. Chase Bank, you have become rogue in your business plan, the same way that slavery and other institutions that are no longer have a social license, you are on that path. And that is why we are here. When I hear speech like that, when I hear comments like that, I sometimes kind of wonder who it's for. And, and, and my curiosity is like, the banks don't care, right? I mean, you know, the, the, the banks don't care. Most of the executives at these banks don't care who they invest in. They don't live in the neighborhoods or they don't think they live in the neighborhoods that are affected by this. So when you give a speech like that, is it is it to galvanize the audience? Is it to get the attention of elected officials who can make policy to change it? Who are you speaking to? It goes to all. I think that, you know, my sorority sister, the famous Zora Near Hurston, said it best. She says, if you are silent about the pain, they'll kill you and say you enjoyed it. And so I think the role here for us is to make sure they know that we are not silent about what's happening. The goal here is for to speak to these bank executives. We've had conversations with them as well. I mean, so we take it, we take it both an inside and outside approach. So folks should know that we, yes, we're out, we're out there protesting at the bank, but we're also talking to the bank because we're hoping to, to go to their humanity. Because what's happening here is that the banks are are the the, the money source for these these projects. So when these the fossil fuel industry um, who needs to have their social license because they're not transitioning fast enough from fossil fuels to clean energy, we're hoping that these banks and insurance companies, pension funds, can divest and they can move away and say, listen, clearly this is hurting our communities. Our communities are dying. We're dying because of emphysema and cancer and asthma. And so you cannot be funding this. I wouldn't expect you to be funding the local drug dealer. I don't expect you to be funding the fossil fuel industry as well. And so that is what this is. So we we actually, we've seen success in that, I will tell you. We've had many conversations with many of these banks. I mean, they're listening and they also have their sustainability plans. Many of them want to, you know, transition, they say about 2030. And so if they're serious about that, then they're going to make that happen. Uh, and I will tell you this, when I was in Dubai this past year at COP, uh, which is the United Nations Climate Conference, I actually ran into Darren Woods, who was the CEO of Exxon. And Darren Woods came up to me and Darren Woods said, uh, I had got finished speaking. He said, you know, Rev, you said you're a great speaker, but you're wrong petrochemicals. And I said, you know, what, what do you mean I'm wrong on petrochemicals? He said, you're wrong because you're saying that it's, it's hurting people. And I realized then when he said that, I said, well, you know, Exxon, you, at Exxon, you have the facts and figures. You know the health crisis behind this. 
And and I will say this, I'm glad you're there because we, we need, I hope that more phosphate industries take this chance to transition, but that's the problem. The problem is, is that particularly when it comes to our communities in Atlanta, or like I said, in Memphis, New Orleans, you know, my, my, my home state or Baltimore or wherever, Newark, Detroit, that we are the ones who are dying for other folks' greed. And we're not going to take that no more. So we're calling on these banks like Chase, like Wells Fargo, whoever, to stop the money pipeline. And we want them to stop the money pipeline to help these these, these industries stop. Because we believe that there's a, an expansion. Right now, there's a want to expand on petrochemicals. You know, obviously, we have enough single-use plastics. It's just been reported how the plastic is now emerging in the placenta, particularly for Black women. I mean, this is outrageous. I mean, this is literally our babies are being born with plastic in them. So there has to be a stop to this madness. So that's why we're calling on those who fund these projects to stop. We're going to take a short break and we come back more about the Hip Hop Caucus with its chief, the Reverend Lennox Yearwood. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. This is Jason Johnson, host of A Word, Slate's podcast about race and politics and everything else. I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered a word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at a word at slate.com. Thank you. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today we're talking about the Hip Hop Caucus with the Reverend Lennox Yearwood. I want to talk a little bit about your background. You know, we've talked about Hurricane Katrina. We've talked about why that disaster was sort of a seminal moment. What did that do to you personally? I mean, you said you're from Louisiana. You knew some people there. Were you already involved in environmental activism beforehand? And then Katrina was like, okay, this now needs to be my life mission. Is that what sent you to divinity school? What was sort of the genesis? What's what's your superhero origin story? <laughs> well, you know, it's fun. I was went to divinity school. Um, and was at that time working with uh, a lot of the hip hop folks doing get out the vote efforts, working with Jay Z, doing Voice Your Choice, working with many others, the hip hop summits. We were doing all of that, did the vote or die, um, you know, and so we were doing all those campaigns in 2004. And then after that, you know, we were then working on other issues at that time working on making people aware of the Supreme Court, just educating our community on that. And then Katrina hit. And I think for me, I will tell you, and this seem, for some may seem weird, but it literally is in the, at that time, the 1,833 people who died because of Katrina and then more who died of heartbreak and died of other reasons. Um, that is what has fueled the hip hop caucus in me. I, I personally feel that I just cannot allow for that and for the future generations not to have this. I think that 
if we look years from now on this moment and they say, well, y'all were arguing about who was running for president between uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And, I, and I'll say this too. I think it's also disqualifying. I think if you are someone who goes against clearly the science and you're saying that climate is a hoax, that's disqualifying because you know that is going to destroy it. I think if you're saying that and they're trying to find answers, that should disqualify you from politics off the bat. And I think people, I think other people understand that. But for me, the fact of the matter is that I know that years from now, when we're no longer here, those people don't have clean air and don't have clean water. And they are at, right now, we're over 400 parts per carbon in the atmosphere, but they're not 500. And they're fighting for wars because of just resources. If they look back at us and say they were, man, they was just talking about nothing and find no solution, they will curse us. And so what fuels me is that I just want the generation that comes after us, the same way that those who who fought for us to be free from slavery, I want to be free from fossil fuels so that next generation, they can live. That That's what fuels me. You know, you talk about the next generation cursing the past. Why didn't you guys deal with it? Why didn't you guys handle it? Uh, or hopefully, you know, praising the past for putting us on the, the right path. You were mentored by civil rights legend Dorothy Height, and she was one of the people who organized the March on Washington in 1963. What did you learn from her that still applies today to organizing? I mean, and those basic stuff, right? Like knocking on doors or whatever. But what did she teach you philosophically? What did she teach you strategically? You know, or what are some of the high points? Because obviously she taught you more than we, we could have a whole five conversations on that. But What's like one or two major things where you're like, you know what, like that worked in 1963, that still works now, or that didn't work in 1970, but you know what, it makes sense now. What are some things like that, one or two major ones? I think for me, and folks understand that it was very, I think it was very strategic for her to take me under her wing. She saw that I was doing this hip hop work (laughs) and it was kind of on the outsides of the margins, but then even in black spaces, people didn't know. 20 years ago, man, it was, we, we couldn't even get a room at the Congressional Black Caucus. We started off, we had to go down to Howard University to do our first hip-hop caucus. So I think that she took me under her wing, kind of seeing that and just let me be around her. I think the one thing that I took from her that, I, that, that goes now is the power of a matriarchal-led movement. I think the power of Black women is something that I have has taken. You see that now within all these movements and allowing for that space. And my role as a Black man to, to ushering that in. I think the one thing that I took from her is her patience. You know, when, you know, she thinks she would tell me kind of behind the scenes, because, you know, you can go see all her all her quotes about ripe in the moment and we're not a problem people, which people are problem. You can see all the quotes. But the thing that she told me was her patience when she wasn't allowed you know, the National Council of Negro Women was one of the, the hosts of the March on Washington. She wasn't allowed to speak. And she would tell me, she would say, Rev, I was Martin, she would call him Martin, you know, and John, John Lewis. I was old enough to be their mother and grandmother, and they wouldn't let me speak. And then, and she said, but the good Lord allowed me long enough to outlive all of them so that I can say what I got to say now. <laughs> and so not being bitter, I think sometimes when I move, a lot of folks, they get bitter and cynical and jaded and they just begin to fight one another. And that's that's not it. So what I learned from her is the one, no matter 
If we're in this together, love one another. That's the one thing. And to have patience and know that your time, whenever your time is that God has your time to do what you need to do, it will emerge. I got to ask this because this is this goes to to even the name, the Hip Hop Caucus, right? We're both Gen Xers. And there's a couple times in my life where I remember like specific things where hip hop artists got involved. I'm not familiar with a lot of hip hop artists talking about environmental justice as an issue. Maybe some talked about, you know, Katrina, but not environmental justice as an issue. What's it like trying to recruit entertainers into this space? One of the things there is that we we sometimes in the climate movement, because it is a movement that's looked upon as being a predominantly white movement, sometimes look, is looked upon as being a siloed, segregated, progressive movement. And so the lens of it from that work looks at it through a lot of the big greens. And we're Hip Hop Caucus, we're changing that. But I, for me, I can tell you that I see a lot of artists. So, for instance, Beyonce who was very outspoken on the, the the power shutoffs in Texas. And now in her smash shit, Texas Hold'em is, you know, references both a couple of times, you know, climate and also even climate anxiety. Common has a song that we wrote, you know what I'm saying? Trouble in the Water talks about the water crisis in Flint and other places. Rihanna um, has done so much, literally has become one of the most biggest benefactors, literally giving out $15 million for issues around climate and has been speaking out about that issue and leading on that. I mean, I can go down the list of so many amazing artists and activists who have been speaking out about this issue. But the problem, though, is that the voice is not respected. And that's something that I think has to change. And I'm hopeful that within this whole conversation of politics, people don't think of people of color, black, brown, or indigenous, young people or folks from the queer community as being environmentalists. So Hip Hop Caucus' job is to change that. So we're using culture, we're creating documentaries, we're creating conversations, we're creating things to really bring that to the fold because no offense to our friends in the big greens, they're not bringing that forward. And when they do bring it, it's just user to it. We're saying that let us hear from the genius outside the academy and let us hear these voices that are that are rising up as our new uh, environmentalists, who I believe if you hear from those voices, we can actually make change happen. We're going to take a short break and we come back more about the Hip Hop Caucus with its chief, the Reverend Lennox Yearwood. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking with Reverend Lennox Yearwood of the Hip Hop Caucus. One of the complications of getting Black folks engaged in the environmental movement is that the leadership of a lot of these environmental organizations, as you've mentioned, is white. A comedian at one of your events in Norfolk, Virginia, actually made a joke about it. We're going to play the clip right now. Get your thoughts on the other side. Uh, I often get to go to a lot of climate crisis events, and I'm the only black person in those rooms, even though we are the ones that are disproportionately affected by the climate crisis, which is messed up. And I want to tell you just a report from these white climate crisis rooms, what they worry about. Straws, sea turtles, black people. (laughs) It's not a good order. It's not great. That's a very real thing, right? What kinds of things does the hip hop caucus focus on? that are more culturally relevant, that hit people in ways that some of these larger white organizations often miss? Yeah, the first thing that we push is we make sure people understand that they have to be an intersectional environmentalist. 
that climate justice is racial justice and racial justice is climate justice. And so using one's culture, expression and culture to help create that. You heard it here in that. That was a clip from H. Mama's Heat Wave, which was a comedy documentary that we did with some comedians in it. And it's so important because it allows for us in our cultural way, barbershop, I would say beauty salon way to have a conversation that's very serious, but to make fun about it. And that's one of the beautiful things about comedy and comedians. We're not also doing that in our in our upcoming, we have a new documentary that was being done with uh, with Liz Halfstead as one of the directors and Dream Hampton um, um, as, as the other director did a film with Wanda Sykes. It's called Underwater Projects. And Wanda Sykes, who's one of the funniest people I've ever met, is uh, narrates that uh, that film. So I think as we've been using culture and those kind of things, conversation, podcast, um, you know, everything we can. And I think the thing you mentioned there is this: there are some real roots to that that we have seen post, um, obviously, the George Floyd reckoning. Um, a lot of these organizations, particularly progressive organizations, were were all open. There was they were talking about allyship and definitely big greens. We've seen a pushback against that. And that pushback has caused problems. While even while we have supported the Inflation Reduction Act and, and are so excited to see the largest climate bill ever put forth in that measure, sometimes our communities, like in the Gulf Coast, in the Arctic, are the ones who are kind of used as a lever to kind of give things back. And we saw that with with Mansion, with the Mountain Valley Pipeline. So there's some need there to stop that part of the process. There's also a need here um, in using culture as a way to just expand the movement, to help broaden it so that we can have more people of color. Uh, when I would go on to black colleges, universities, you know, from Hampton to Howard to Morgan to Morehouse to Spelman, every room is full, you know, because we're bringing people like Amanda Seals and Raheem Devon and other artists into those conversations. And I also say this too, that the New School did a study of the 12 largest foundations. And in that study, the New School looked at that they gave out $1.2 billion for climate advocacy, which is great. But out of that $1.2 billion, only 1.2% went to environmental justice or people of color-led organizations. So that means that literally 99% of the money that is going to do this work is not going to Black-led, women-led, young people-led organizations. And so we think that that's another thing that needs to change. And hopefully by the changing of that, the investing in more culture, the investing in creating more content, which we're now seeing, I think that that's going to help us to not only broaden the movement, but help us to win. One of the things that I, I see a lot of times in Zoomers, millennials, you know, my, my students at Morgan State who are who are concerned about these kinds of issues is it sort of seems to go parallel with an ambivalence and sometimes an absolute antipathy towards electoral politics. Because if the idea is we don't want this new Amazon distribution center being built here, that's going to, you know, increase traffic, smog, everything else like that. We got to do that now. That ain't something we can vote for. That ain't something that we can go talk to politicians. They're going to dither and dally. We got to go. If we are in Fulton County and we're trying to stop Cop City, we got to stop this now because we got a mayor who ain't trying to help us. We got a governor who wants it to happen. You know, the electoral process doesn't work. How do you try to convince young activists and even some older activists 
that it's not an either or, but an also and. Because even if you get a victory through protests and on the ground activism, holding that victory often requires some sort of legislation, right? Yeah. Well, one, either you shape policy or policy shapes you. So too too often we see how how policy can look when it's shaping you. I'll use Cop City as a good example. That's something there that's very important to a lot of young people and to environmentalists. That's actually the crossing. Um, that was for folks who don't know, that is there's a force uh, that's called the Willany Force in, in a part of Atlanta that is scheduled to be torn down. They want to tear down the force to build a mock city in which they can do cop uh, and, and police uh, tactics. And so the idea is, why do you need, we don't need to tear down the force. We need every force we can have. Particularly, there's a, the force that's right next to the Barack Obama elementary school in Atlanta that gives them clean air. We don't want to tear that force down to, for those kids can out here, gunshots and rounds in their community. So that issue is something that people are fighting. There was an amazing uh, non-binary activist where they were, they were killed. And that issue has taken off because of that. So there's a need to protest. There's also a need to be going to the city council meetings and to speak out. There's also a need to do ballot measures, what they're doing. So you have to do everything. So you're quite right, Jason. It has to be and both. And I think that our younger generation is they're now getting used to that, of what it means to do both the inside and outside approach. They're getting used to what it means to be the spook who sat by the door, to be in these places. Sometimes they need to understand what it means to have working for the mayor and forcing, but it's also an ally. They're, they're understanding how to have allyship. So I think that there's a new awakening post, actually, after the George Floyd that is kind of happening. There's a huge onus on truth. We're seeing now and people want to be about the truth. But I think that there's a there's an understanding of what it means to do this work. And they also understand what it means to have resources. They understand, you know, no cash, no cost. So they're, they're fundraising differently um, to, to do this work. So I'm excited, actually that there is um, a more disciplined, more sophisticated movement that has emerged post um, what, what was uh, the movement for Black Lives and it's kind of going into democracy. I just think that we need to continue to do that political education component. We're also having kind of unsettling where those who are used to the academic approach are trying to figure out, well, how do we deal with this genius? And I think that's where we need to have that kind of Ella Baker moment, right? Where we need to be able to bring it all together. So you can bring on a Martin as Ella Baker did, or you can bring on a family Hamer, right? And so I think that we're now seeing this now. And a lot of folks who are who are in kind of the establishment are a little bit, what's going on? I'm not used to these kind of people. But I think that this is going to make us stronger. We can just not be bickering about who's keeping it real, who's not keeping it real, but we can come together and see whose genius can solve our problems. Rev, you know, I always like to end the interviews with either an optimistic note or a way that people can participate, get involved, get excited, whatever. I'm going to ask you this, whether they're you know, is a, a Greenpeace chapter or a Sierra Club chapter or hip hop caucus coming through the city. What is the single thing everybody listening to this show right now? Because one of the things that I, I also find, I know this is academic, is that when it comes to activism, it's like people get primed in that moment. We have a primed audience right now. What is the one thing you can tell them that if you care about the environment and you care about environmental justice, and especially when it comes to black and brown folks, this is the one thing that you can do that can help this movement and help this process going forward that you're not going to forget about in three days. Yeah, the most important thing is voting. Um, it's clear 
that there's a person who wants to go back and does not believe, and they will disrupt all the measures. They will turn, they want to dismantle the Environmental Protection Agency, which protects our clean air, clean water. They want to dismantle the Department of Energy, which is allowing for us to move from energy poverty to energy opportunity. They want to dismantle so many areas, HUD, which is, which is we know our, our, our housing projects are the ones that are most flooded and most at risk. And so voting, yeah, but this, this, I mean, I know it seems crazy, but if you really care about your child, your mama, your daddy, don't want to see him get cancer, don't want to see him get emphysema, then you got to vote. Like that's real, and I and and I and I really mean that from the bottom of my heart. We we really we can't go back on this uh, on this one. So yeah, I would say that's the key thing. And I would say secondly, I mean, Hip Hop Caucus has emerged. We're very blessed to be emerging as one of the environmental justice organizations for our community. And so I would just say, just go there and check out what's happening about caucus and get engaged. Reverend Lennox Yearwood Jr. is the president and CEO of the Hip Hop Caucus, a nonprofit voter education group. Thanks so much, man. I really, really appreciate you coming on the word today. Thank you so much. And that's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Christy Taiwo Macanjula. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Slate Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for a word. <laughs>